Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. New primary prevention guidelines could increase the use of some diabetes drugs. The FDA expands criteria for which patients can take part in clinical trials. And a summit on value-based insurance design shows the need for tough conversations with stakeholders. Welcome to This Week in Managed Care. I'm Laura Jose. Last weekend's annual meeting of the American College of Cardiology brought an updated set of primary prevention guidelines released with the American Heart Association. The guidelines say two newer classes of type 2 diabetes drugs, the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonists, can be prescribed to prevent long-term complications such as heart failure. The guidelines also recommend limiting the use of aspirin in primary prevention and for clinicians to investigate social determinants of health. Other headlines from the ACC meeting included a large study involving Apple Watch found it can capture atrial fibrillation, and Johnson & Johnson now plans to use the watch in a randomized clinical trial. New results from the DECLARE trial found that dapagliflozin offers benefits for diabetes patients with heart failure, and new results from the REDUCE-IT trial show a high dose of an omega-3 fatty acid component sold as Vasipa cuts the total of cardiovascular events by 30%. Both the FDA and the research community have discussed the challenge of getting more patients in clinical trials, especially study patients who reflect the real-world population. With this in mind, FDA last week issued four draft guidance proposals and one final guidance to get more children and more patients with comorbidities into cancer trials. Said FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, In trials testing treatments for cancer, some eligibility criteria have become commonly accepted over time or used as a template across trials without a clear scientific or clinical rationale or justification. In other cases, eligibility criteria can be deliberately restrictive even though it is not clinically merited. As a result, cancer patients are often unnecessarily restricted from participating in trials. The final guidance gives criteria for enrolling teenagers in adult oncology trials. The adolescent and young adult age group has been underrepresented in clinical trials, and survival rates in this age group have stalled. The proposed guidance documents address the following. Minimum age requirements for pediatric patients. When studies can enroll patients with HIV, hepatitis B, or hepatitis C. When studies can enroll patients who had pre-existing organ dysfunction. And the criteria for enrolling patients with brain metastases. In a recent interview with the American Journal of Managed Care, Dr. Janice Mannert of Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey discusses when trials should be open to patients with comorbidities. There's a lot of very good reasons to have strict eligibility for clinical trials, but once you get into an arena where you have a reasonable handle on the safety profile of a medication and you're starting to see it approved in multiple places, that's the time to say, okay, do I really need to have this perfect measure of kidney function to enroll this patient? Do I really need to exclude somebody who has a history of hepatitis C, perfect liver function, and a tiny, tiny viral load that's detectable on blood work? Um, do I need to exclude that patient that had a very small brain metastasis that was treated and stable? I, I think the answer to many of these questions is no. Um, I think we need we can be more inclusive, and, and there's actually um, a uh, task force developed by the American Society of Clinical Oncology um, that has really addressed these questions, you know, in a, in a larger forum, and hopefully we'll start to see some change. There's plenty of discussion about the need to reduce low-value services in healthcare, but actually making those cuts requires tough conversations. 
That was one of the lessons from this year's Value-Based Insurance Design Summit held at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Gwen Darian of the National Patient Advocate Foundation said the language used when describing the need to eliminate low-value services is critical. Said Darian, a lot of the ways that we've talked about reducing low-value services has had to do with waste and waste in the system. People do not want to hear that anything their doctor is prescribing for them is wasteful. Instead, it's important for payers to frame the conversation about the harms of unnecessary services. Gay and bisexual men who participated in community groups had greater awareness of pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, than those who did not, a new study has found. With 70% of new HIV infections occurring among gay and bisexual men, getting this group to take PrEP is a crucial step to reducing infection rates. The study in PLOS One, which was conducted in New Orleans, a city with a high HIV infection rate, found the following. Men in the target population who took part in community groups were 40% more likely to be aware of PrEP than those who did not. 47% of gay and bisexual men were aware of PrEP, and 60% of participants would be willing to use it. AJMC will be on the road again this week covering the 45th Annual Meeting and Cancer Center Business Summit of the Association of Community Cancer Centers, which takes place in Washington, D.C. From there, we head to Orlando, Florida for the annual conference of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. To read all of our conference coverage from ACCC and NCCN, visit our conference pages. For all of us at the Managed Markets News Network, I'm Laura Jost. Thanks for joining us. To learn more about any of the stories in this podcast, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.